Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and I'm back again with another episode. In this episode, I'm speaking with Rob Rayner, one of the founders of and the CEO of RF Corval, a specialist property fund manager, which has transacted on some 59 acquisitions in property and has currently funds under management of about $1.5 billion. As a specialist property manager, they've got a great track record with a weighted average equity return or IRR of 20%, which equates to about 1.9 times weighted average equity multiple back to investors. In this episode, we speak to Rob about his outlook for property in various sectors, the future of office, uh, industrial, listed versus privately held property, as well as many other subjects that I think you'll enjoy. Please remember that this podcast isn't designed to be, nor is it specific or general advice or advice of any sort. People are very much encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to seek their own advice before considering any investments. Please remember to keep your feedback coming through. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. I enjoy those suggestions and also suggestions of who we should be talking to in markets and various investment management and wealth management topics. Please enjoy the episode. Rob Rayner, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. Rob, perhaps you could kick us away and let the listeners know who is Rob Rayner. Sure. Um, look, I guess it goes back to, I'm originally from Perth, grew up in Perth, um, in a great family, um, played lots of sports when I was younger. I was not good at any of them, had a real passion for cricket, but um, yeah, as time went by, that passion for cricket then was superseded by AFL. You know, I just love AFL, um, strong supporter of the Carlton Blues. Um, don't talk about the final series last year where we got resolved by Collingwood in the last game by one point. I'm still got getting over that, but footy's my passion. Um, done a bit of coaching with the Sydney Swans in the academy program, so and I've coached both my boys in the junior football leagues as well. So, so footy's it for me. Um, growing up in Perth, beyond playing lots of sport, I, I sort of had this vision to be um, originally a train driver, you know, of all things. Um, you know, my dad was in the railway industry, but that sort of quickly you know, evaporated and then had a view that um, I wanted to be a chartered accountant, which I did. I became a CA and then quickly realised I just didn't want to count six minutes of every hour of every day of every week and did the, th- did the three years and then um, I had an opportunity to work into the real estate space and I've always had a passion for, for real estate. So that was for context 1990 and so therefore I've been in real estate ever since. So. I think you might have been, you touched on your accounting background. Were you at Arthur Anderson? Was I, that correct? I was at Arthur Anderson. You've got a very good memory. So yeah. And, that was and, and what, what did you learn out of that, if anything? I know you didn't want to count six minute segments of your time, but is there anything, any disciplines or any learnings that you take yeah. out of that that you think holds you in good stead now? Yeah, I think so. Look, and I thoroughly recommend a chartered accounting to anyone. You know, uh, both my boys are doing commerce and, and I've said, look, a great grounding to start is, is chartered accounting, but neither of them are doing that, but that's fine. But I think being a chartered accountant, it really gives you that discipline to sit and think and analyse and understand what the risks are in transactions, see where the opportunities are, listen, learn, meet lots of different people. Um, and I was involved in tax, not, not audit for, for, for um, perspective. So tax you know you've really got to read and understand and look at things and scratch your head and, and and work out where you can actually either save money or make money within the flag you know flags of where you can and can't so i think it's a really good discipline doing the chartered accounting 
program whilst working full time wasn't straightforward. Um, works, you know, teaches you the you know, whole work life balance. You know, get the work done and get the study done in the evening. So, time over again, I'd do it all over again. Wouldn't change one thing. And now you're the CEO founder of RF Corval, a successful property mm. investor. Uh, if you look back at that career, what what are some of the formative events that have taken place that really shape the way you think about investing in property these days? Yeah, look, it's, um, you know, I'm old enough to remember both the stock market crash of 1987. Mm-hmm. I just started working, um, uh, finished uni in 86. I started in 87. Of course, we know what happened in October of 87. So not that that was directly relevant for me, but I saw how things can change with events. But I guess the most um, impactful thing for me was really 1990 and 91, where interest rates were hitting um, 18%, 20%, and being involved in a funds management group at that stage, which for context was Armstrong Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a portfolio of assets heavily weighted towards Perth, which wasn't the place you needed to be. Perth had vacancy rates going through the roof, trusts which were relatively highly geared, no liquidity, and, and for context, imagine rolling over debt today at 18% per annum. It just kills you. So, And then that you know, sort of led to a lot of the trust and listing on the stock market in the early 90s. Um, so so for today, everything that we do at Corval is really about what can go wrong, what's the impact of gearing. Gearing's great and it has been great in a, in a sort of yield-compressing environment, interest rate-lowering environment. We've now touched the wall and it's going the other way. So debt is less helpful than what it's been, but we don't aggressively use gearing. We never have, we never will. And, and I'm always acutely aware of where debt can hurt you and, and, and the pitfalls of that. And that, I think, harks back to me, or for me at least, all the way back to 1990. So, and we've sort of seen what's then happened with the GFC in 2008 and 2009. To me, that was just a, a repeat, you know, rinse and repeat of what we saw in 1990. It's the same thing. You know, gearing's great, can be great, but it can be very hurtful for, and, and more so for the wrong type of assets as well, which, which maybe we can touch upon a bit later as well. But... Sure, we'll, we'll dig into that and let's make sure we touch on that when we talk about some of the specifics because I'm, I'm keen to yeah. delve into that experience. Now, uh, I just touched on the, or the CEO, founder of RF Corval. Mm. Um, tell us about RF Corval. Yeah, look, we, um, so you're right, like I'm the CEO of the business and also a co-founder of it. My fellow founders of that were two very long-term and, and deep trusted friends of mine, Ian O'Toole, who... Uh, I, I think is one of the industry veterans. He's highly regarded. Uh, he's no longer with the business today. He initially said we'd get five years out of him and we were lucky enough to get 10. So they were 10 really good years. Uh, and my other shareholder, or my other founder rather, was Andrew Roberts. Andrew is the eldest son of John Roberts and you know Roberts' uh, family owned the multiplex constructions business. So they were a global construction firm that was ultimately acquired by Brookfield Asset Management in 2005 or there, thereabouts. So Andrew and his family had a liquidity event and, and Andrew had uh, some, some cash that he wanted to put the work into to real estate, being the asset class he knows the best and, and he reached out to myself and Ian to sort of do that together with him. So we started the business back in 2009 and to be honest, David, we had you know zero agenda as to how big we wanted to be, uh, the type of assets we wanted to have or the amount of staff and, and we weren't precious about any of that but what we had clearly in our mind was that we wanted to get the investing into real estate right and, and what does that mean it really means i guess in our, our minds three things being really disciplined on the buy side you know manage the assets super intensively and then thirdly don't forget to sell you know i think a lot of our peer group 
um, sometimes don't forget, they forget to sell the real estate or they're perhaps not as intensively managing those assets as what we do, or at least I think we do. In fact, I know we do. So there are our three pillars, buy well, be patient, actively manage the real estate and then look to sell it at the right time. And then around that, some other stuff, which was really just employ the very best people we can. I know we've done that. Um, you know, have structures that are clearly easy to understand and we can communicate what they are. And if someone reads something from us and they don't get it within a minute, we've gone wrong. So it needs to be really simple and clear to understand. Explain things fully. Um, you know, have an alignment of interest. So we co-invest in everything we do, which is important. But I guess most of all, fiercely protect capital. You know, we see our investors as not just dumb providers of capital, but partners of ours that co-invest into the same projects as us, along us, alongside us, in the same terms. Um, there's no different classes of units. There's no tricks with what we do. If you're putting your money to work with us, you're putting your work, money to work with me and, and many other people at RF Corvale. So, so fiercely protecting capital, and, and for that reason, you know, many people have heard me say I, I describe our business less as a funds management farm or as a property investor. You're know, investing our own money alongside our investors, and we're, we've got the same interests and outcomes. So. And what proportion of the money when you started out was your own money yeah. uh, or, or Andrew Roberts's money um, compared to what it is today? Yeah, look, it was more back then and particularly Andrew. Look, let's be clear, Andrew's got a lot more money than me. He's, he's a wealthy sort of guy and, um, and but he fully believes in everything we're doing. Um, and for context, Andrew doesn't sit on our boards. He doesn't get involved in day-to-day stuff. He leaves the running of the business to me and, and our team, which is terrific, but he couldn't be more supportive. So for that, I'm forever grateful. Um, our first couple of assets we bought, I still remember them, they were the first asset we bought was was um, using Andrew's balance sheet together with his sister Denby. We bought an asset or they bought an asset off uh, AMP back in 2009 or 2010, which was Industry House in Canberra for 100 and let me get the numbers right, it was 123 million. Um, they bought the asset for, it was valued independently at 134 million, even though the value we knew it was that number we paid. Um, and then those assets were made available to our investors on exactly the same terms. So, so that was Andrew's money to start. Uh, and then the second asset was an uh, asset that Andrew bought off uh, the Goodman Group, which was the Red Cross Blood Bank building here in Sydney. Uh, and again, we sort of solved that asset down with new investors coming in and sitting alongside me, Andrew, Ian and other investors. So it's um, so Andrew was very, very important to us to start with and he still is today. Um, you know, Andrew sort of regularly sort of, um, you know, is keen to understand what we're buying, what we're looking at. When I sit down with Andrew, it's more discussion about the assets we've got, less so about the business that we're in, um, which is good. That's where his focus is. So, yeah, so it was um, more important then, far less important now. So, And how do you manage the potential conflict of a large investor, founder, mm. in terms of the deal flow coming through now of cherry picking or otherwise in terms of, you know, obviously it's well known as a very large liquidity event yeah. and much more capital to deploy. And if a great yeah. investment comes over the bow and says, well, we'll just take a lot of it versus yeah. the investors and vice versa. How do you manage that? Yeah, look, it's just a conversation we have at the start. You know, Andrew gets it, I get it. You know, we can't, we can't put our self-interest ahead of our investors and we haven't done that to date. And our business started in 2009, so we're now what's that 13 or so years in, we've never done it. And whilst I'm there, we never will. So Andrew's never pushed for that. You know, conflicts of interest for me. Uh, and again, our team at work and our investor base must get sick of hearing me say it because it's very important for me. I don't ever want to see, uh, for example, you know, selling one asset from one fund to another on behalf of different investors. You know, how can you say you bought well and sold well? 
and when we have acquisition meetings and for context we have them every tuesday we run through everything that we're seeing in the marketplace and 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 with our investor base maybe i should talk about that to give you some context for, for the scope of things we see our investor base has and still includes the likes of the future fund uh, victoria funds management corp funds sa many family offices multi-family offices offshore groups you know many high net worth investors and, and even some retail investors with stuff we've now recently pushed into so so the reason why i mentioned that is we've got very large pools of capital that are available to look at many different assets and um, our institutional clients for example are looking for larger assets and our, our sort of syndicates are looking for more value-add style assets and and so we sort of segregate things in a conflict by either reference to the size of the asset and where it sort of solves it for, you know naturally the style of the return or the risks in that asset whether it's core plus or value add and by core plus and value add and i'm really conscious that real estate people use a little bit of jargon so i'll sort of put that in context you know core plus and value add is things where you know there's some you know space to let some capex to be done some repos you know repositioning of the asset as opposed to buying a, a more core asset we've got a long-term tenant with with secure cash flow so so you know the style of the returns and the and the, the nature of the asset management also tends to solve for where that asset needs to go you know our wholesale investors in the past have looked for more sort of core plus to value add stuff our institutional clients have looked for you know sort of slightly rest less risky assets with with larger ticket size and lower gearing so and some of our offshore clients have looked for you know, very lower risk, lower return type assets, more annuity style assets. So, so so far, I know we've got it right. And when we have an acquisition meeting, we're very clear where that's going to. And, and I include people where we need to at the right time. And, and not once has Andrew ever said, look, that's great. Can I bend the back and get more of that than what others could? Um, so he knows the value of our business and our brand. And um, you know, it's never been an issue today. And I don't see it will be moving forward. So. And where do you fit into the landscape here in terms of size and how does that play into any sort of competitive advantage you might have? Yeah, so, so over the journey, um, and I looked at this before we came down because it's not something I focus on, so numbers are, are less important to me in terms of our size, but, but today we're about 1.6 to 1.7 bill of FUM, so we're, not, we're, not, we're too big to be small and too small definitely to be big. We're not, we're not and I love that. You know, I love the fact that we can remain nimble and agile and and when the, the uh, agents have got assets to sell often we're on that group where you know an owner might say look you know i don't really want to sell but if i can get this number or i don't want to get mucked around by a vendor or a purchaser can you take it to three or four selected groups i think we're pretty much always in that list because we give quick feedback you know brand's important if we're going to do something we do it and we've got access to the capital we need to get it done for for bigger style assets so so, so the nimbleness for us is, is important and I don't want to see that ever change for what we do. Um, so, so we're not, we're well out of the realms of competing with privates um, and, and we're happy to roll our sleeves up and buy assets that larger institutions would see as either too small or too hard or doesn't move the needle for them. And, and in fact, you know, many, many of our best acquisitions have been from you know, the REITs where they, you know, either they haven't seen the opportunities that we've seen or to be fair to them, it doesn't move the needle for them and for us. Which is pretty considerable. Uh, they'll have assets yeah. up to many hundreds of millions of dollars that yeah. really don't move the needle for them because yeah. some of those REITs now are, are quite sizable. Quite super. You know, they're, they're in the tens of billions. And, and for us, you know, we're sort of closer to two than one, which, which is great. Um, but again, the size for us, I don't care whether we're one or three. I just want to do the right thing by investors and get the right return. So when we buy 
assets off, or whether it be a REIT or whether it be a private, you know, our asset management team will just turn every screw, look under every sort of rock they can and get outgoings down and drive things which, which as I say, you know, not being disrespectful to the REITs, you know, they do a terrific job, but, but for us everything matters right down to that sort of granular level. So, so yeah, so, so it's really our competitive advantage is, is, you know, and the great thing about it is, David, you and I can both look at an asset. You might see something in it that I don't and vice versa and just because you're paying the most for the asset and therefore get it, doesn't mean to say you're the smartest. Often you could be the dumbest. Um, so, and, and we're quite happy to miss by other people being a bit more aggressive on things or we're not pricing risk that we price risk into or not factoring in the capex or the downtime or, or everything else that needs to go with something. So, so we're not afraid to. And, and the great thing about it is, is there's always another deal. So we, we're not we're not stressed about trying to get everything. In fact, we miss nearly everything that we look at because we want to buy things well and. You know, I heard one of the agents, um, I think it was last year sometime, one of our investors was doing some DD on us and said, look, before I give some money to Corval, I'll, I'll sort of go and talk to some of the better agents around town. And he didn't tell us that, which is fine. And, and the feedback he got from the agents was, look, you know, those Corval guys are great, but, but they're bottom feeders. And I thought, well, that's tick for us. You know, we like the fact that we're seen as being opportunistic, you know, the buyers for both their own money and our investors. So we're, we're, we're quite happy to miss deals. And We'll go up against anyone that we think we, we we can compete with, and we're not afraid to go against anyone. But it's not a drag race for us. It's about just being patient and disciplined and buying the right assets at the right price. And it looks to me that at some point in the business's evolution, you made a move from sort of close-ended single-asset funds mm. to uh, a more open-ended funds under management style. Um, when did that happen and, and why? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an interesting observation. Yes, that's correct. You know, we started life as basically just doing some closed-ended syndicates. And by that, I mean, you know, we buy an asset for X dollars, issue a document, we need to raise Y dollars for that. And it's investors got exposure to that asset and that asset only. And that's been really successful for us, really, really successful. And and over the journey, our, you know, an average equity RR across everything we've done has been you know, in excess of 20%. So I know we've got most things right. But in more recent times, you know, we've had a number uh, of our investors have come to us and said, look, you know, we're either too busy to do what we do, we're travelling, we trust you guys, you've done a great job for such a long time, we'd rather allocate capital to a strategy, you know, that is commit capital to a fund as opposed to, you know, picking and choosing between deals because, you know, we just trust you guys, we don't have the time, which, which, you know, to be honest, sort of surprised me a bit because I would have thought most people would rather have a line of sight to what they're investing into, but... That's not always the case. So we, we're, we've made the decision to, to do both. We're not going to just turn our back on syndicates. They have been our lifeblood to date and they will continue to be that. But but we've also got you know, a high level of demand from a number of groups to, to put capital to work in a strategy, whether that be an industrial infill strategy, uh, a manufactured housing strategy, um, an open-ended platform fund like the property fund, which both wholesale and retail investors can invest into, or last year we raised what we call a partners fund, which is a um, a fund that, that had you know, a large amount of capital committed to it, like a private equity style fund that capital's committed to a strategy. And the strategy that we had at the time was we thought the world was going to get darker. And I'm of the view that that still is the case. Um, so we raised that fund back end of last year. Um, we've got one opportunity already sorted and, and that will get the capital to work over the next sort of six to 12 months. So it's a committed and it will get priority over, to your point about conflicts of interest, anything we're seeing 
that we think pencils to a 12 to a 15 equity IRR, that fund will get the first lick of that to within a certain mandate. You can't take 100% because that deal might be too big for it. And then the balance will then look to syndicate. And then we show that to all our investors. Some said, no, we don't. We just want to do syndicates. And many, many others sort of said, that's great. That's exactly what I want. So for us, we're trying to solve for a broader church of both syndicates and, and also people that want to put capital to work in a strategy slash fund concept. So changing pace a little bit, if you, if you go back to your process and analysis and as a property investor, maybe you can talk about where the process works really well and what's an example where, you know, you've got it exactly right mm. and conversely where you've got it less right mm. and how you handle that. They always say that you learn more from your failures, but maybe you can give me an example. Yeah, 100%. Look, let's start with a bad one. Now, let's, sure. Let's, let's not just sugarcoat everything. So I think we've got many, many things right, but let's just jump to the one that um, still I get upset about because, you know, we haven't lost any money for anyone. Um, and I should point out not one investor has ever lost a cent with Corvo and that's the way I want to keep it. Uh, this was a um, broad acre residential land subdivision that we undertook here in Sydney. Um, residential isn't normally where, in fact, this is the only thing we've done in residential. So it was an opportunity when you know, land prices here in Sydney, you know, for context, it would have been 2018 or thereabouts and, and land prices, there was shortage of housing and, and this is in northwest and southwest of Sydney. Uh, this was actually in Leppington, so here in mm -hmm. Sydney. Um, and it, and it didn't go anywhere near the way we thought. We, when we issued the IM, we thought we've really pulled everything back here and we were showing an IRR of you know, 25 to 30 uh, and we really pulled everything back. Um, needless to say, the actual end IRR was nowhere near that number and we got hammered you know, with, with basically non-income producing land that had non-bank finance not aggressively geared. Um, that took way longer than we thought. And then there was a slowdown in the resi market. COVID hit. Um, you know, there was just all, and we had a difficult adjoining owner, which, which at the time we didn't think was going to be the case that then held up approval processes. And we got jammed with holding non-income producing land with, with, with relatively expensive non-bank debt. Um, that was, you know, consumed a disproportionate amount of time at Corvall, as you can imagine, but, but we've now since closed that return the capital, delivered a far less modest return than what we thought we would, but we've licked our wounds and we've sort of, we own that and we will be issuing our final report to investors uh, next month on that one and there'll be a full sort of rundown on, on, on that and we don't shy away from that. But we've learnt a lot of lessons from that and the lessons there are probably won't do residential land subdivisions again and if we were to do it, we'd probably fully equity fund it. We would use non-back debt um, and we'd sort of make sure that our owners were, were probably... Uh, a little bit more conducive to working with us and, and we sort of hope that, you know, COVID, those type of events wouldn't happen again. So that's one that, that you know, we, we cop on the chin and, and um, you know, we move forward. And then, you know, if I move to the other ones that have worked really well, um, you know, we've had lots of those. Um, you know, if I pick out, you know, one or two, you know, we bought an asset in Parramatta off, off one of the REITs here in Sydney or Australian REIT um, and, um, you know, this was before Parramatta really boomed. So we bought the asset for 30 odd mil. It had... Um, it was fully attended at the time. One of the tenants rolled out. We then took the opportunity to refurbish the space, got a government tenant in there uh, and really drove the rents hard, you know, got the outgoings down and cap rates out at Parramatta really peeled in and uh, we ended up selling the asset for, um, you know, circa $90 million. So investors got, I think from memory, about a three to three and a half X on that and a, you know, really chunky IRR of, you know, 30, 40, 50% or something like that. So it was a really big one. Another one was, and this is to my point about we're not afraid to go to where others aren't. Uh, an asset in Pennant Hills. So, you know, Pennant Hills is a, 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 
a suburb here in Sydney, it's by any measure not an office market. There might be you know, a small handful of office assets out there. Office assets out there. It was a mortgagee in possession sale. Um, you know, the, the mortgagee was, was Westpac and we ended up borrowing the money from St George. So that's a certain irony in that. So, um, and we bought the asset for, for um, I think from memory, about 20-odd mil and we sort of sold it for, for 45 and in a very short period of time with, with getting a government tenant in there and just, again, just bending the back, you know, getting outgoings down, making the property more presentable. So, so that was a good example of something went really well. And, and we've also done, you know, we still have got some unzoned land down in Truganina, which is in Melbourne, and, you know, we bought that asset really well. And, um, you know, land values in, in any industrial, you know, precinct have gone through the roof and uh, we're half out of that. You know, investors have got somewhere between two and a half to three X on, on their dollar for half, and we've still got another 50% to go. So I'm hopeful we can get sort of... Um, you know, that number again um, for, you know, for, for those investors. So, so there's a, a range of different things and there's a whole bunch of other things in the middle which have sort of penciled to that average of 20. Um, and for us, what makes me really proud about those returns is a lot of the stuff we've done with some institutional clients, you know, the return, the, those assets have been more lower risk style assets with lower gearing. So that 20 is a weighted average IRR which incorporates, you know, some of those bigger assets that have had slightly lower IRRs than that. So it's sort of across everything that sort of blends to that. So, Terrific. And perhaps you could talk a little bit about the different sectors within real estate and how you're thinking about those currently and, yeah. and sort of what you're, you're liking and what you're a little bit sort of watching out for. Yeah, well, again, let's maybe start with the things we're watching out for. Uh, we're watching out for, um, in fact, we've got no interest, not even just watching out. We've got lines through it. Anything that's got very aggressive yields, um, on long-term annuity-style assets, you know, with with um, you know non-CPI reviews, where the you know those cap rates or yields are you know, worth high three and a halfs and mid fours, um, we we just don't even look at that. So we're out of that, and we never, in fact, we're never in that. So so we've sort of got no appetite to go into that because I think that is like a bond, and, and you and I both know what's happening with bonds. You know, in the recent sell-off with rising interest rates, so that's those assets would have uh, be affected by that. Where we're also not have an interest for homogenous office space. So there's plenty of office space that's available for for either direct lease or subleasing at the moment. So anything that doesn't stand out or doesn't have an obvious point of difference or is not, you know, near amenity or, or public transport, you know, and, and the whole COVID stuff has changed the way that, you know, certainly us as a landlord thinks about space and how tenants look for space and how their users being employees want to be housed in space. So we've sort of listened to that and sort of looking at office space that we think can work for that. Um, and we think there'll be some real winners in that. You know, things that, as I said before, is creative space that, you know, has got a nice feel about it near near transport, near shopping centres, near near food, plenty of car parking because, you know, a lot of people now drive to work as opposed to public transport. So so we're, we're pivoting more towards that. We haven't done anything in retail at all, um, not not by design, but we've always been felt that our core strength has been office and industrial, so we sort of haven't tried to be all things to all people. So, you know, in retail, it still remains, you know, somewhat interesting to us, but we're still nervous about just the whole, you know, if my wife's anything to go by, how things are bought and sold, it's, it's through a computer as opposed to wandering through Chatswood. So, um, so I, I watch that. Um, and a lot of food still gets turned up in out of the back of a van as well. Um, mm -hmm. So so it's, you know, we're sort of question marks been retail. But if I then pivot to what we like, um, we've had terrific success in what we call sign-on leasebacks. So working with corporates 
that have got assets on balance sheet um, that are particularly, you know, like in the food sector, we've done a lot with Ingham's and we've done a lot with other groups where we've got an underlying food thematic, um, where we've been able to structure the terms of how we buy the real estate off the corporate, structure the same lease that they then lease it back that works for them. So typically long-term leases, 20, 25, 30-year leases at rents that we feel comfortable at and businesses that we feel can pay the rent. So, for example, you know, we typically look to set the rent at, depending upon the industry, say 25 to 30, 35% of the profitability so we know that they can pay the rent. Uh, we've had real success in that. Um, we've just completed a transaction, you know, last quarter of uh, 2022 and we've done a lot before that and, and I'm confident we'll do a lot more in that space. So they're not straightforward deals to do but I know we've got great bench strength and, and pedigree in that. We've probably now done, you know, five or six of those deals over the journey. Um, other sectors we like a lot is industrial, industrial infill locations where you've got, you know, a typical property you buy. And infill you mean within a sort of ring of Sydney or yeah. Melbourne? Yeah, so not out, not out 70, 80, 100 k's from the CBD. Where you're not competing with greenfields, yeah. you know, the paddock next door and the construction costs of that. Correct. So you go out there and there's just land as far as you can see. We're buying stuff in inner, you know, inner city infill locations. Um where there's, you know, you know, the typical profile of those assets is vacancy rates, uh, you know, one to two percent, probably closer to one. Uh, you're buying an asset in the smaller assets, the assets might be 10 or 15 mil and, and typically, you know, the coverage on the, you know, so the shed that's on that site might be only 30, 40 percent of the land area. So you can develop out further subject to, to approvals. Um, sometimes they're below replacement cost. Um, the outlook for rent growth is, you know, has been and continues to be, you know, sort of north of 5%, sometimes up to 10 and we're seeing that firsthand with the portfolio that we've got. Um, you know, so, so our strategy there is this is a fund opportunity. We've now created a fund that's, um, you know, got 13 or so assets in there, about 130 to $140 million of assets. Uh, it's performing really well. We're getting strong rent growth. It's a portfolio of assets. We've now got a couple of institutions that are now looking to put some money into it, which is great. Um, so the industrial infill strategy for us is is a real interest. And I mentioned food before. You know, we think the world's getting bigger and hungrier and we've sort of seen, you know, the impact of COVID and, and, and also extreme weather events on, on how food is produced and, and we're sort of early stages into, in fact, it's more than early stages. We've now settled the land to buy and develop a, um, a glass house in time. So you've sort of seen a lot of the, a couple of groups out there are, are pretty active in that space. So we're, we're looking and we're working with, a group which I can't mention just yet because it's early stages, but but we're excited about that opportunity to go and develop a large scale, uh, a glasshouse which which will then be um, you know producing you know um, fresh fresh produce and uh, and we've got a site that we've um, got in mind for that 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 can develop that further as well. So, and then finally you know the hotel sector, you know the rebound in tourism globally, um, particularly with China opening up, is um, you know, remains of interest to us. And we've got two. You know, very high quality people within our team, Chris and Maria, that drive the hotel stuff for us at the moment. We're currently developing a hotel asset out at uh, the Sydney domestic airport that will be leased or operated rather by Marriott. That'll be their first and only hotel they operate in the Sydney domestic airport precinct. And, um, you know, we think that the rebound for tourism and also both inbound with external offshore and also within is pretty interesting as well. So, I'd be pretty confident we'll do a bit more in the hotel space. But again, we wouldn't be looking at that unless we have the real in-house skills. And with Chris and Maria, I know we've got that. So it's really sale on leasebacks, you know, industrial infill locations, um, food and, and hotel is sort of, you know, probably four of the 
immediate thematics that come to mind at the moment. But but that said, you know, the way that you know, I love our business the most is we're very opportunistic. So someone might turn up tomorrow with an office asset that we think, wow, that's interestingly priced. Um, you know, they're me- you know, happy to meet the market. We think we can add some value. So so we'll look at that. So we're we're not smart enough nor good enough or clever enough to be able to say, David, you know, we think that, for example, office assets in George Street is where you need to be and at the eastern end of the CBD and Pitt Street's no good or St Kilda Road's on the nose and you want to be – we're not that good. And anyone that says they are, I think is making it up. So for us, you know, we, we basically look at a lot of things, say no to most, but but even the things that I've said we're not that interested in, I'd be very confident we'll look at some stuff and think, well, at that level it makes sense. So. And you touched on there your capability in the office area of, uh, over a long period of time. And I think mm. you know a lot of listeners, the first thing they'll go is, well, w- what is the future of office? Mm. Obviously, we've had an unprecedented unprecedented pandemic and it's mm. changed a lot of patterns mm. uh, combined with very low unemployment rates mm. um, where, you know, many in the CBD in Sydney, for instance, in Melbourne, it's a real struggle to get people back to work. Mm. And I think it's well noted the leverage that the average worker has in that conversation mm. at present mm. anyway. Mm. And, you know, I've seen unusual situations we had at the end of last year where, you know, in our I know a sort of off the record conversation with someone who's managing a large pot of money in a financial services, a mm. large financial services organisation had tended at what I thought was a very good proposal. And I, I spoke to the chairman of their investment committee and he said, well, have you, and I said, well, why, why didn't you like that? And he said, well, have you seen how much money they've just spent on their new office space? Mm. And they'd spent this money to try to lure their workers mm. back into the mm. office. Mm. So they're kind of wedged now between their clients don't want them to have these mm. huge fancy offices mm. because they think, mm. you know, well, gee, where, where, where are the costs going yeah. and the expenses? And at the other end, um, you know, th- th- they're trying to get their workers back in, so mm. they're trying to create an environment and mm. more cafe style and somewhere that they want to actually come in. Mm. So w- in your mind, what is the future of office space mm. and, 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 and an aggregate level, how does that affect it? Yeah, look, it's it's and look, the the short answer is none of us know, right? Let's be clear about it. You know, no one can be prescriptive about what's going to happen tomorrow or indeed six or twelve months time. But but my strong sense is that, you know, fundamentally, you know, I, you know, I work best when I'm around people. Now I accept that there's a lot of industries and stuff that allows for people to work, you know, not around people. And and I think, I think that's okay and that's good. And and if I sort of take a, a more holistic view on things, you know, I've got kids and you know many of our team have got kids and stuff and I think it's terrific that people can and should and do work flexibly from time to time from home whether it be a you know a fixed day a week or or to be there for when the kids have got a concert on school and, and I think pre-COVID that was sort of frowned upon and people would make up reasons oh, I'm sick or I've got this and, and hide behind the fact they really want to be there for the kid to see a you know graduate or sing at a concert and those times are precious. So I think COVID has been good in that sense that it's allowed us to refresh and be honest about technology does allow us to work remotely and, and, and therefore gives us flexibility to be able to get the car serviced on a Wednesday afternoon because it's easy and just make up the hours that evening. And I think for groups like ours and I'm hoping many, many others, if you've got a loyal team and you trust them, they'll get the work done. So I'm... I'm Pretty relaxed. In fact, at Corval, you know, I, I'm in most days unless I'm travelling. But, but a number of our team, you know, regularly work from home on a Wednesday or a Thursday. But, but what we do do is we insist that every Tuesday at least, everyone's in the office. So we sort of create that 
um, connectivity and relationship to make sure people are all still around each other from time to time. And as it turns out, our business, we work better around each other. Now, that's, I accept that's not true for everyone. So, so um, I think the future of office is, is office space will still be needed. Um, and you can't say to your landlord, look, I only want to be in the office on Tuesday and Wednesday so I can only pay 40% of the rent. Well, that doesn't work. Um, and, and when I've thought about this and looked at it, you know, if I looked at, you know, your firm, Coda, for example, I, I think it'd be very similar to our firm, you know, by and large, your biggest cost, I would have thought, almost certainly would be your people cost. And, um, you know, your politicians talk about productivity all the time and stuff. And if you've got your team that, you know, uh, aren't working efficiently, um, you want to create space that does allow them to work efficiently. So so, so the rent bill, you know, I guess in Coda's P&L would be, fraction of what the people cost would be so you really want to create space that's that's you know you wouldn't go down the path for saying look we'll just everyone work from home and we'll do you know zoom calls and team calls we don't need office space i'm sure you and others that drive the business would want your team in here so so if you look at the pnl effect of having creative efficient office space to bring them all in and get around and work on deals and understand who's doing what it becomes less of a focus now i'm not saying rent is an inexpensive cost but compared to your people cost it is um and you you want your team working efficiently and harmoniously and you need space to do that. So so I think in time, and I think sooner than what people think, um, particularly if we've got more difficult times ahead of us, and I'm sure we have, and I'm confident we will, you're going to find those that are reluctant to come into the office space and others that are coming in might, again, get a little bit left behind and, you know, they might then end up having more of a, a job with Coda as opposed to a career with Coda. If, for example, they're constantly from home and they're not around the team and you and you know, your team working on things. So I think it sort of stabilises and gets people coming back in. You know, human beings at the end of the day are pretty competitive mammals. We want to be around and doing things and be around and, and when things are happening and things are made more difficult, that I think is also a bit of a stabiliser. And I, and I think the other side of it that there hasn't been much discussion about is the supply side. You know, like when... I remember when the three towers Barangaroo here in Sydney went up, everyone thought, well, where's, that, where's the demand for that going to come from? Now, they were full in no time, no time at all. What you're now going to find, I think, you'll see less, for very obvious reasons, less office space develops. So we talk about the demand side for office space. You know, Economics 101 says the price of any commodity, whether it be rent or something, is driven by both demand and supply. I, I'd be confident that we won't be too many new assets built. So I think the supplier side will help on the demand side, on, on the pricing of rent and therefore capital values. But, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, you know, people are social, they need to be around people to do things, you need office space to do that. And, and rent as a cost of a business and, and, and a factoring in how the space is designed, which comes back to what I said before, we're not interested in buying space that's just cookie cutter, bread and butter, doesn't have a point of difference. You've got to create space that your team are happy to come into. And I think if that's that box is ticked, you know, you'll find the team will want to come in and be around them and, and get more out of them that way. So. Do you think we'll see or have you seen any evidence of conversion from office to residential for or for other uses? Um, that will definitely happen. You know, we've sort of seen some discussions about buildings that have become completely vacant and, you know, conversion to, to residential and, and um, the costs haven't quite worked for that, but I think that, that thematic will certainly happen. Uh, I've no doubt about that. Um, you know, is that something that we're actively looking at and doing ourselves? No, but I think, um, you know, the, the cost to refurbish as opposed to, you know, knocking down what's there and, and creating new, 
I think it may you know become a vogue and, and, and work for some developers, but that's not, not that's not an area that we're focused on. But I think you're definitely right. You will see more and more of that, particularly for assets that are more in that sort of you know lower you know lower B sort of C D grade, so the more fringy type stuff. That's pretty average office space. That's going to be very hard to let. But at the end of the day, it's still on on the edge or the, on the edge of CBD locations around bars and pubs and public transport. I, I think that will definitely happen for that type of space. And you mentioned it when you're talking about the various sectors and experiences that you've invested into. I think you mentioned Ingham's, mm. and, and I'm, I'm keen to understand what your view is or appetite for potential agricultural mm. transactions and what you've done in the past in that space. Yeah, look, as I say, we've got massive appetite for it. We've now done. Uh, I remember when Ingham's uh, was owned by TPG, the private equity group. Um, yeah, they brought those assets to market before they listed Ingham's on the stock market. So that would have been, I'm guessing, back in. Yeah, you know, thirteen or fourteen or fifteen or thereabouts, probably about fourteen, and it was interesting. The purchase of that portfolio, if I remember, was Charter Hall ourselves and a group out of Canada called WP Carey. So, um, you know, Charter Hall bought the, the more traditional industrial assets, and we bought the processing plants, and WP Carey bought the, the balance. and And I remember, still remember it like yesterday. There was this really interesting meeting. We sat there, and and TPG with the vendor of the real estate. Um, of course, they want to sell the real estate for as much as they could. That's the focus of private equity. We get that. And clearly, we want to buy it for as low as we can. You know, they knew that and we knew that. And then the other part of the triangle was the CFO of Ingham's was, was in the room as well. And he had to pay the rent for, for, in this case, 20 and 25 years. So clearly, he wanted to see the rent low. And if the rent low, therefore, all other things being equal, the value of the sale price of real estate would be low. So there was this interesting sidebar conversation going on between TPG saying, look, we own you guys. And listen here, the rent's going to be here, not there. Um, and uh, and the CFO was fighting hard to pull the rent back, which which we were sort of holding our hands out, sort of warming them to, and we sort of liked that conversation. And even the rent reviews, they said, look, we want the rent reviews at this, not that. And so uh, that allowed us to really, you know, structure a lease that, that we were comfortable with, that TPG were happy to sell at. And importantly, in this case, Ingham's was happy to then to be on the other side of for, for 20 or 25 years. And... Um, so that was our first foray into that. We learned a lot from that. We got it right. And then from that, we've done a whole heap more since then. We've done another asset with Ingham's um, in, uh, in, in um, Murray Bridge over in South Australia. We've done uh, a deal with a group called Montague, which is a food packing and processing plant down in uh, Narrawarren, which is sort of in the sort of um, a Melbourne suburb on the, on, you know, on the outskirts. We've recently done a transaction, a large transaction. It's our first offshore transaction. Everything we've done up until now has been here in Australia, but it was with the, the mainland group and the, the mainland group are the largest producer of eggs in New Zealand, the market dominant position, off-market deal that was bought to us um, yeah, by ANZ. You know, Navis was the private equity owner of that and, and we're really pleased with the way that transaction sort of settled for us and I know dealing with Navis, it was... Um, it was good from our perspective. We know they reported the same. So we've done you know, at least four I can think of, and, and I'm sure there's some others that I've missed, but but all of them involve that underlying food thematic, um, and, and we think that's only going to be, you know, continuing to grow. So we've got real appetite um, with that. So it allows us to the, – the, the thing we like about the most with those is we can just structure the deal the way we like it. Um, you know, we've walked away from others where we've um, – had something put to us and the agents said oh look this tenant's really strong and we've looked at it and said no their financials are poor and the rent that they were looking to set the real estate at was at 50 or 60 percent of the profitability and we said no that's too high you're not you're going to struggle that's not going to work um so we walked away 
um, and some of the, again, to your point, the deals that haven't gone so well, uh, I equally look at we've walked away from lots of other deals and just copped the costs on our chin. That's what we do. That's our business. And again, I think we learn more from those as well. And our investors love it when we sort of say, look, we've had the capital raise, we're in this deal, but something's happened and we walk away. So in those couple of food deals in the sun on leaseback space, we just felt the tenant wasn't strong enough and the rent was therefore going to be too high and the risks were too great. And we looked for a price renegotiation, but we couldn't get it. So we said, that's fine, we walked away. So, um, But I think we'll do more in that space as well. So, And Rob, of course, when many investors are looking at their portfolios, and they come to the property bucket, they've got a couple of ways they can access that. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But one of the things that strikes them is, you know, the illiquidity around property and the trade-off that comes with that. And you talked about knowing when to sell and being willing to sell. Yeah. How do you think about that? Or how do you think investors should think about that sort of illiquidity trade in, in most of your closed-ended funds or even the open-ended funds? Yeah, look, I, I think the liquidity thing's important, but I equally sort of think it's somewhat unimportant you know, you know we've got um we've probably done I, I counted it up i think we've got about 16 syndicates still on foot at the moment we've wound up about another 10 so we've done somewhere between 25 and 30 syndicates since we started i can count on you know less than five fingers one hand how many calls or requests we've had from investors to say look i want to get out of my circumstances have changed now maybe that's as much to do with the syndicates perform really well so why would you get out for something that's performing well? So, but if I bring my, you know, this is a personal observation from me, I think the, 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 the sort of premium or the returns you give up to access liquidity um, yeah, are material and significant versus, you know, what we can provide is like the D9 tractor which just chugs along and just produces returns. And, yeah, and if I bring my own, again, hark back to something that I still remember, like, wasn't so long ago. I remember sort of being at a meeting um, here in Sydney, and, and it was when when Trump was about to be elected, and, and, and all the states lit up red, and it was obvious that that Trump was going to get in power. This was in November, and I went home that night, and I said to my wife, I said, "Trump's going to, he's, he's in, he's in, and, and the world's going to change from January of next year." And, and I was just beside myself. I, I remember I went to bed that night, and the FTSE was down, whatever, eight or nine percent, and. And I sort of sat up, watched the US start trading, it was down a similar amount. And then I got up in the morning and bang, it's, well, you know, both what happened. I turned around and people came to the census and said, well, actually, this guy's pro business and giving taxes down and stock market really rallied hard. But my point there is if that afternoon that I got home between getting home and waking up in the morning, if I could have sold everything that I could have in the unlisted space and gotten out of, I would have. And I therefore would have given up so much. But But for us, our investors want to see what we do, go the journey, go the distance. They've backed an opportunity, they've backed a style of returns and they don't want to sort of see it disrupted by, you know, the fact that Rob or David or someone else wants to get out. They want to say, well, and that's why when we structure something, it's always like-minded, very similar investors that come into it that, that sort of get it and understand it and want that, you know, that negative correlation in their portfolio that, that direct real estate gives. It's, it's, it behaves very differently to equities and, and many other listed type of opportunities and, and that's exactly what our investors want. So um, again, you know, to your question before, some of the stuff we won't do, I just don't think you'll see us doing anything in the listed space because I think real estate, and I'm biased, I think it performs better in an unlisted environment where it can, you know, like you plant a seed and a tree can grow and you, you sort of pluck the apples when they come off. You don't want to be caught up in gyrations of, of you know, 
you know, Gigi Bing said this or something's the happened fear, there. The or, fear and greed and market sentiment yeah. that drives valuations. Yeah. And it's been a wonderful conversation. And just as we conclude for our listeners, I think it would be helpful if you could maybe talk about your outlook and maybe if I can reference, you know, right now you've seen as, as interest rates have hit the wall, as you mm. said, mm. Um, and, and now going the other way, you, you've seen listed markets and the REITs mm. You know, what are they off? Something like 30%. Mm. Um, so the market's kind of saying, hey, the assets in those portfolios, we think they're now substantially worth yeah. less than what they were. Yeah. We haven't seen a lot in the private markets yeah. be revalued down yet and a lot of expectations of vendors. Um, how are you thinking about that and what's your sort of outlook in that area? Oh, look, there's no there's no doubt that I think, um, you know, assets in the unlisted or, you know, the direct markets are going to reprice over the course of this year. You know, not all assets are going to come down by the same price. It's the same as, you know, something like residential to say that a house in Double Bay versus a house in wherever is going to change. And, you know, they, they all assets change differently. So, um, and depending upon, the, you know, the security of the cash flows and stuff. So, there's, but there's no question they'll come back. Um yeah, again, this is probably more of a personal view. I, I sort of think that the REITs maybe were probably a little bit too over, oversold. People jumped, they got a bit jittery. And, you know, we're now starting to see some data coming out of the US, for example, that, that may be, um, it might change next week, but, but certainly the current discussion and commentary is we've rolled over the top of inflation. And you know, even overnight, we saw, you know, 10 year bonds and government bonds in the US sort of firming a bit and sort of prices going up and maybe the worst inflation is behind us. And, 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 you know, I think a lot of the nervousness and, and concerns about rising interest rates and inflation has been certainly permeated into the listed markets. You're right, it hasn't come yet into the unlisted markets. It's going to come. How much, I don't know. And we've got our views. And in fact, we're just going through some of our portfolio only yesterday, um, looking at some of the assets in our in our property fund, which, which we'll look to mark to market, which we have to at 31 December, you know, with auditing standards. And we're already on that process. So we're going through that ourselves. But it will happen, but I, I, I also think that maybe the, the, the REITs themselves have probably jumped a bit too hard, but only time's going to tell. Maybe they're more right and we're wrong, I don't know, but maybe the truth you know, sits somewhere in the middle, I think might be the answer there. So, Rob, terrific. Thank you for joining us Inside the Rope. It's been a great uh, time we've spent with you, a lot to learn there. Congratulations on the career today and, and good luck in the future. Thanks for joining us Inside the Rope. Thanks, Dave. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.